Thank you so much. Good morning. Well, with one less hour of sleep this morning, we still come into God's presence to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And as you're turning in your Bibles, a quick reminder that we will be in just four weeks using the English Standard Version on these Sunday mornings. The current version that we're utilizing, the New International Version, this edition of the New International, is no longer made available to us when we go out to purchase Bibles. It seemed a logical time, transition-wise, to make the switch. And so beginning that first Sunday in April, we'll be using the English Standard Version Bible, which I think you're going to find spiritually enriching. It's going to provide what you desire from a scripture to meet the needs of the heart and soul. So look for ways to be able to make that purchase in the days to come for not only you, but loved ones as well. And hopefully we're all on the same page in that first Sunday in April as we open our Bibles, as we're doing right now, too. In this case, Galatians chapter 5, where we are in verse 1, down through verse 12, looking very carefully at what Paul describes as our freedom in Christ. So hopefully you are making your way in your Bibles to that fifth chapter in Galatians Fifth, we are in verse 1, down through verse 12, we find these words. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. At all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have been alienated from Christ and you have fallen away from grace. But by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You are running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? Well, that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast wicks through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. And as for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. There's words for you. I don't know what our Bible quizzers do with that one when it comes to Bible memorization, but we'll leave that to our quizzers and look to our Lord in prayer. And our Father, we thank you so much for being our God. 
You're the God of grace, and you're the God of goodness. And a day like today where the nation pauses to adjust clocks, we have a God who needs no prompting when it comes to the matter of time. You stand outside of time, but you sent Jesus Christ into time because in the fullness of time, you sent forth your Son, as Paul wrote in Galatians. Perfectly timed. Not a minute too soon and not a second too late. Where Mary carried Jesus into Bethlehem. Where prophecy eight centuries prior foretold the fact that Christ would be born in Bethlehem and she didn't deliver prematurely because it was in the fullness of time that all this occurred. You are the God who's sovereign over time and does all things in a timely way. But some of us here this morning are struggling with time. For some, the clock seems to be ticking on something that matters most to them. Health-wise, decision-wise, dollar-wise. And they might feel stressed this morning by the pressure of that ticking clock. This morning, I pray that they are going to put their faith and their confidence in the one who controls time, past, present, future. So, Father, we thank you for that timeless God of ours who works in such timely ways for your glory. Now, Father, there are a wide range of needs in all of these services. There are going to be some heavy hearts here, and there are going to be other hearts that are just simply perplexed, confused by certain events that have just happened in his or her life. Maybe it's been a medical diagnosis. Maybe it's been a job situation that all of a sudden that they thought was so certain, maybe less so. It might be some tensions over the course of the week, family-wise, maritally, or in their own singleness. That's brought a lot of pressure into their, into their thought processes. Father, by your grace, now I want them to give them all to you. You know these needs. You know what kept us awake last night. You know the pressures that come bearing down on us. So, Father, in these moments together, what we're praying now is that, again, you're going to warm these hearts of ours. Engage these minds of ours. Shape these wills of ours. For, again, we've come here now to see Jesus. Him only. We pray these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as you're looking at a passage of Scripture like we are this morning, where it stresses our freedom in Christ, maybe your mind can relate to something that was told by a a judge of a prior era. His name was Judge Lyle Dickey. He was a very close friend of Abraham Lincoln. 
And they were debating back and forth this bill, the Kansas-Nebraska bill with regard to slavery. For you see, Judge Dickey in that time period, he contended that slavery was an institution which the Constitution recognized. Lincoln thought and argued otherwise. And outside of their own home turf at that point, late at night, they continued to argue. Dickey writes that after a while, we went upstairs to our hotel room. There were two beds in our room, and I remember that Lincoln sat up in his nightshirt on the edge of the bed arguing the point with me. At last he went to sleep. But early in the morning I woke up and there was Lincoln, half sitting up in bed. Judge, he said, I tell you, This nation cannot exist half-slave, half-free. Notice how Paul begins his words. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then. He goes on to say, Stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. He's telling you and he's telling me that through the work of Jesus Christ, you've been freed. You've been liberated. You have been ransomed from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. But along came these individuals who were known in that time period as Judaizers, who were attempting to distort the teaching that Paul was delivering to the people in Galatia and elsewhere, arguing that You are saved on the basis of your merit, not on the basis of Christ's merit. They wanted to add human works to Christ's finished work. But that holds one in bondage. And Paul recognizes this. You cannot function half slave, half free. You cannot on one hand ask Christ to pay it all, And then on the other hand, try to appease God by doing something on the basis of human merit. Again, you can't live half slave, half free. Which is so much of what the religions of this world seem to produce. But now Paul, in unmistakable terms, argues that it is for freedom. Here's a purpose statement that Christ has set us free. So in light of that understanding, here's what he now says to all believers. If you're born again, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior now, what Paul is about to say to you is stand firm. Be unswayed. Don't lose your stance. 
Stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now notice that he is using then the picture of farm life when he now says stand firm. Don't be burdened by this yoke of slavery. You are saved, all believers, by grace, not by human works. There was a missionary in the Philippines who describes this story. I was watching a driver of a wagon on his way to a market. When he overtook an elderly man uh, carrying a heavy load, the driver invited the elderly man to ride in the wagon, and gratefully, the old man accepted. After a few minutes, the driver turned to see how the man was doing. With his surprise, he found the elderly man still straining under the heavy weight. Because even though he was now being driven in this wagon, he still had not taken the burden off his shoulders. And that is a picture of the religious person who has still not found true freedom in Christ. Where we have to be able to say once and for all that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for our sins. Now, in light of that opening verse, what I want to do with you is to draw you in with me this morning, and we're going to become teachers. We're going to be teachers of those around us who may not recognize this truth that we've found in verse 1. We want to be teachers to the children that God has placed within our homes. We want to become teachers of grandchildren. We want to be teachers of those around us in the workplace. We're going to become teachers for these next few minutes. And if there is one thing that we're going to attempt to do in our teaching now, is that we are going to draw out distinctions for those who are willing to listen to what it is that we're teaching. Because we live in a culture that no longer can make distinctions between true and false and between right and wrong. And the wise parent, the wise grandparent, and the wise individual who wants to have an impact has got to think about this critical key word we're going to use here, distinctions, in a culture and in families that no longer do so. There are two distinctions I want to draw out for us based upon our freedom in Christ. The first is found in verse 1 down through verse 6. And we're going to phrase it like this, that through our freedom in Christ, number one, we can distinguish between false and true teachings. You want to be able to equip those, your loved ones, your work colleagues, those that you hang with, that we have to have a capacity, and by God's grace we have been given the ability to make a distinction between the false in this world and what is meant to be true for this world. Now notice carefully that Paul begins with what you and I might be told as false teaching. 
And he exposes the false teachings from verses 2 down to verse 4. And he starts with an exclamation point. When you and I are attempting to equip people that we love, care about, people we're sharing the gospel with, there's got to be an exclamation point in our hearts. We want to be able to drive home this wedge of distinction. Mark my words, he says. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. Yet who, you who are trying to be justified by the law, have been alienated from Christ, you have fallen away from grace. Now, if you and I are absolutely committed in, among our friends and our loved ones to be able to make distinctions between the false and the true in this world, Notice with me, just in verses 2 through 4, there are three warnings that Paul equips you and me with to be able to help people to make such distinctions. The first warning in verse 2, that if we add our works to Christ's work, Christ is of no value to you or to me. You see it there in verse 2? Mark my words... I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Now, circumcision here was the buzzword, the symbol for the idea of salvation by works rather than salvation by grace through faith in Christ and in Christ alone. And what he is saying is, look, if you are attempting to gain acceptance from God on the basis of either your supposed good nature or your supposed good works, slowly but surely, you will value your nature and your works more than you will value Christ's nature and Christ's works. And you'll begin to push Jesus Christ out into the margins of everyday life. Now, oftentimes this happens subtly within families, within a nation, within a culture. But when we choose not to value what Christ has done, the result is we begin to value what we can do for Christ and ultimately in place of Christ. I thought about that where in the past days uh, in the Sheboygan Press we've been told that one of the key members of the PBS series, Antiques Roadshow, is coming to the region. He's going to be at the Wade House. And the Wade House is publishing this and asks, curious to know what your heirlooms are worth? Some things have a precious value for us. That's beyond price. But wouldn't you still like to know what they are worth? Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. 
With that word value, it's incorporated in the word evaluation. What you and I want to do is to be able to equip our young children, our teenagers, or if you're like me, adult children, to be able to carefully evaluate what it is they're hearing on the news, what it is they're listening to musically, what it is they're observing visually, and ask the critical questions. Where is the value of Jesus Christ in the midst of that which is currently being presented? And how much value do I place on Christ in the decisions I'm making relationally, in the decisions I'm making financially, in the decisions I'm making educationally? Because value requires evaluation. We've got to be able to evaluate what we hear and what we see in light of where true value is to be found, in other words, at the cross of Jesus Christ. If Christ has truly paid the penalty for my sins, if Christ has broken the power of sin, do I still value a certain sin? And I have rationalized it and not called it so much a sin as a personal preference. At that point, I've pushed Jesus Christ to the side and value that and devalue Christ and what he has done. But if we are equipping our family members and our friends and our co-workers wisely and effectively, what we're doing at this point is we are now refocusing attention upon the word value. We have said before that the world seems to know the price tag of everything and the value of nothing. Don't assume that the price tag is equivalent to the value in this culture. Jesus Christ paid the penalty that is a value statement for our sins. And when we have Christ at highest value then, a works-based approach of achieving salvation or gaining acceptance to God on the basis of simply who I am what I, or what I have accomplished will not be acceptable in the eyes, you see, of our Lord. There's your first warning. You see it in verse 2? I'm telling you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, in other words, if you focus upon acceptance on the basis of what I do or who I am, Christ will be of no value to you at all because you have become valuable in your sight in Christ's place. And you become Christ's substitute rather than Christ being your substitute. But now, there is a second warning here. You and I are simply looking at false teachings. How do we distinguish between the true and the false? A second distinction here, or a second aspect, if you will, of this, that's found here in verse 4. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. In other words, if you add works to God's grace, not only is Christ of no value to you, but if you add works to God's grace, you become alienated from Christ. And he's saying this to believers. 
because he keeps calling them brothers throughout Galatians. But now comes the punch. Notice the third warning. It says at the end of verse 4, you have fallen away from grace. If you add your works to Christ's work, you have fallen away from grace. And you say, but Gary, doesn't it say in John, where in chapter 10, Christ is recorded to have taught, my sheep listen to my voice and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Does this mean that he's saying you can lose your salvation? Notice what it says and what it does not say at the end of verse 4. What it does say is that you have fallen away from grace. What it does not say is that you have fallen away from salvation. It says grace, not salvation. A Christian can fall away from grace, but a Christian cannot fall from salvation. For when you sin, you do not fall from salvation. When you sin as a believer, you fall into grace. Eight times, at least, he has said, brothers, not former brothers, sons, not former sons to these people. Which means then that what he is saying is that such people, when they do not heed these threefold warnings, have fallen what I'll call out of the sphere of God's grace. To develop it a little further, salvation is by grace alone. Exclusive grace. But grace involves more than salvation. It also involves sanctification. The very air I breathe and the food I eat is of God's grace. What these people are doing then is they are diminishing the grace principle in their lives. And they have not lost their salvation. He keeps calling them brothers. But they have lost their perspective on where true grace is found and what true grace is entails. And we've got to be able to help people to value what God has done and not to offer a substitute for what God has taught. Runa Ware, she was a cook, well known. And in her book, All Those in Favor Say Something, help us to understand a little bit of what Paul was facing as these people were exchanging God's plan of salvation for their alternative plan. 
A woman once gave a rather detailed instruction to a friend who was asking about her, my recipe of crab meat casserole. Now, sometime later, when I arrived at the luncheon, my friend greeted me with, Guess what, Runa? I'm serving your crab meat dish today. So she went into the luncheon, and on the way in, she told me that she had changed the recipe just a bit. Since fresh crab wasn't available, she had substituted canned tuna. Canned mushroom soup had replaced my white sauce. She said it was easier. Blanched almonds had been omitted. She said she forgot to put them on her grocery list. Moments later, as people were arriving at the house, and they walked in through the front door, she led them into the dining room area, plunged the serving spoon into the steaming piece of de resistance, and she then looks at everyone and says, and if this casserole isn't any good, don't blame me. This is Runa Ware's recipe. Now, you see what's happening here? Paul's opponents have changed the recipe of salvation a combination of substitutions, additions, and subtractions until what they have here now is an alternative plan of salvation. Question. Have you so equipped your friends and loved ones to be able to spot an alternative plan of salvation when they see it or when they hear it? Can they make that kind of distinction? Sometimes it's very subtle. But it tends to be the elevation of the person at the expense of Christ. Until Christ and his work no longer have true value. Have you equipped your loved ones to recognize true value based upon these threefold warnings? so they can spot false teaching in the movies, in music, in a classroom, among friends. Now, he's balanced, and you're a good teacher, and you're very balanced in how you teach. And so the negative has to be balanced with the positive, just as the positive has to be balanced with the negative in your presentation. So now he moves from false teaching in verses 2 through 4 to true teaching in verses 5 and 6. And he's saying in essence, okay, loved ones, and here's how you are able to recognize true teaching. When it comes to matters of salvation, look for the twofold emphasis here now in verses 5 and 6 upon the word faith. Faith. Here it comes. Underline them as you see them. But by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision have any, there's that would value. The only thing that counts is faith 
Second time it shows up, expressing itself through love. Once you have been able to expose false teaching in verses 2 through 4, at the same time you're going to have to be able to explain true teaching as you are able to see it in verses 5 and verse 6. And in the true teaching, as it pertains to the matter of salvation, twice in these verses, Paul speaks of faith. You are not to put faith in your works. You are to put faith in Christ's work. To put faith in your work is to put value upon yourself, but devalue Christ. But to put faith in Christ's work means then we put ourselves in proper perspective and understand where true value is found at the cross of Jesus Christ. Did you notice that twice, twice, the word faith is utilized here? By faith, in verse 5, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope, so that which is still to come. Christ return. Faith. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love at the end of verse 6. So when you are now hanging with people who say, the only thing that really matters is love, you are basically bumping into an alternative plan of salvation that is based upon love. And what you want to be able to do is to wisely distinguish between the false and the true Put the emphasis upon faith, not in our love, but faith in Christ's work, which was a statement of love. And then show them that love is significant. But notice the relationship of faith to love. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love, which means that's true faith. And there's a lot of counterfeit alternative faith and a lot of counterfeit love in false religion and false spirituality. Now the question is, can you draw this out for the people you care? Can they also spot counterfeit love because it's rooted in counterfeit faith based upon an alternative plan of salvation other than God's word, God's will? Now, what you've done is you've exposed the false teaching in verse 2 through 4. You've explained the true teaching in verses 5 and 6. But now, there's a second significant distinction in 7 through 12. Secondly, through our freedom in Christ, we can distinguish between false and true teachers. Not only false and true teachings, but false and true teachers. Now he draws them in athletically. Those of us who love our athletics, we can almost see ourselves leaning forward at this point. He says, you are running a good race. Question. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? Now, there are those who still would argue for being able to achieve salvation on personal merit by saying and utilizing the athletic running imagery and saying, look, 
It's crossing the finish line in which you achieve something. But Paul is arguing here that this race is run by believers, not unbelievers. Because in the games that he describes, the precursors to the modern-day Olympics, listen, only citizens were permitted to run in these races. Non-citizens were not permitted to run. What Paul is saying here is only believers run this race. This is not a race run by unbelievers. They're merely spectators in the stands watching the race among the believers. Now the question is, who tripped you up? You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? Why, that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. So now, as you equip your friends and loved ones, you want now to help them to recognize false teachers. In verse 7 through 10. And by helping them to recognize false teachers, get them to consider the source. Who is it that cut in? And began to slowly shift my worldview away from Christ's finished work, whether it be through the entertainment industry, through the music industry, through classroom experience at the university, or simply my co-workers who cut in on Christ. Help them to recognize the source in verse 7 and 8. Help them to recognize the effect in verse 9. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Because what he's saying here is initially, initially, the false teacher may be undetected among your children, grandchildren, among friends and colleagues. And what they're saying may initially be just a little bit of loving for the mind. But before long, that leaven begins to have its effect. It grows, expands, until it begins to captivate the thought process of not only an individual, but a group of people. A little bit of leaven, not a lot. A little yeast here works through the whole batch of dough. You're now equipping the people you care about to spot the source. You're equipping the people you care about to be able to spot the effect. And you're equipping the people you care about to be able to spot the result. Look at the end of verse 10. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whatever it may be. The result here is that it produces a confused mindset where they have allowed that which is opposed to God's word to now begin to make its way into the thought process to the point where it's given equivalency And so now, God's word and human efforts and false teachings mingle together, and the little bit, the little bit of the leaven has now expanded to the place where it's produced mental confusion in the side, the mindset of the believer. You see what's happening here? And how practical this is to be able to spot. Once you've been able to articulate who the false teacher is, Contrast it then 
with who the true teacher is. Verse 11 and 12, brothers, I'm still, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In other words, then, it's contradictory. They wouldn't be persecuting me if I was, if I was teaching this stuff, though they may claim that that was what Paul was doing. In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. And what you and I need to do is to draw people back to the cross of Jesus Christ, where true value is found. And when you're able to not only distinguish between the false and the true teachings, but help people to distinguish between the false and the true teacher, wherever the influence is coming from, spot it, explain it, distinguish it. The result will be you'll be able then to equip that person you care about not to live a life half-slave half-free. As the worship team's coming, let me pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you that you are the God of grace. You're the God of truth. You are the God that equips us to be able to make distinctions. One of the most significant ways in which people parent one of the most significant ways in which believers evangelize is to be able to draw distinctions in getting people to focus and refocus upon the cross of Jesus Christ. We want free people, free from both the penalty and power of sin, freedom in Christ. And for this we give you the praise. In Jesus' name.